0: Um, we are um, moving along uh, the next stop of the Exodus Express, in particular Exodus 15.22 to 16.36. That's, uh, that's the end. Um, we have been moving through this book over the last uh, however many weeks um, for a very good reason. Exodus provides the formative narrative of God's plan for the salvation of humanity and for the renewal of, the crea- of his creation. It is also the primary narrative through which Jesus identifies himself reveals his true nature in the gospel. So, in today's talk, we are going to follow Israel into the wilderness. We will find a multitude wandering in no man's land on a journey both geographically and spiritually formative until they get where they belong, the people of God in the promised land. So today we will hear stories that teach us about dependence, about trust, and about the deep, prevailing faithfulness of God. This is about putting into practice what we sing, what we pray, what we believe. And for me, at least, it's something that hits very close to home. Now, when we last left the Israelites, they're in the midst of a great celebration. This is a great song in praise of God's almighty defeat of Pharaoh's forces. The true King Yahweh has defeated the pretender to the throne. Israel, like the infant Moses, has been rescued out of the water from its enemies and so Moses Miriam and the Israelites raise their voices in praise and in thanksgiving and it's actually wonderful to think about with someone like uh, Miriam you know if if you can recall uh, the way the narrative begins, she's the one, or it seems like she's the one who looks out for Moses as he's put um, there in the reeds. She, she testifies to Moses being rescued out of the water, and then there's a kind of nice bookend to the end of this first part of the Exodus. She again witnesses and testifies to um, Israel being drawn out of the water into safety. So we pick up now with Israel the sea, and and Pharaoh's army behind them, continuing their exodus into the wilderness. Now, we're going to get into lots of text right here, um, so it's probably good to use your imagination. Um, for some reason, when I was... I know I was actually thinking of having theme music, but it might be a little distracting, you know, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, like something that depicts, you know, the wilderness, maybe, you know, the, um, uh, there's a sense of no man's land. Um, gosh, what are those things that... Uh, uh, Tumbleweeds, that's right. You know, tumbleweeds, I don't know. I was even going to try in an accent, but I think that would just be embarrassing for. More embarrassing for me, I think, for you than to listen. So, anyways, let me me get to it. So, buckle in Exodus Express, chapter uh, um, 15, verse 22, and continuing on. Then, beautiful. Then Moses. raspy voice then moses led israel from the red sea and they went into the desert of shore for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water then they came to Marah. they could not drink its water because it was bitter hence the place is called Marah. so people grumbled against moses saying what are we to drink then moses cried out to the lord and the lord showed him a piece of wood he threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put, um, put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, uh, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. Quite a foreboding uh, name. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they have come out of Egypt. In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Uh, Moses also said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron. Save the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? Or what is this? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer... The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. "'Eat it today,' Moses said, "'because today is a Sabbath for the Lord. "'You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any.'" Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. "'Then the Lord said to Moses, "'How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions?' Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of, the, of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness that I brought you out of, and ah, when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, "Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come." As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant, um, of the covenant law. This, of course, happens afterwards, so it might be uh, so it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Uh, and Omer is one-tenth of an EPAph. <laughs> On that solitary note, I'll take a drink of water. I did just realize, actually, um, the NIV is really good for readability, but occasionally it skirts over some things. In, in this case, it talked about the water being drinkable, and it should say the water became sweet. Um, it goes from bitter to sweet. But, so when I start talking about water being made sweet... Just just assume that we all read that together. All right, so a lot of text, but we have two stories here. Well, actually two of three. We get to hear the third one uh, next week. Um, This kind of set of three in the wilderness. Um, So yes, all set in the wilderness before Israel reaches Sinai and enters into covenant with Yahweh. So the first story is about bitter water being made sweet. The second is about edible, apparently honey-flavored, white cario- uh, coriander seed-type stuff that gets the appropriate name, manna, or in layman's terms, What is this? Miraculous stuff. No, I'm actually serious. I mean, that's what it means. Like, what is this? Um, I think that's cool. Anyways, as <laughs> I start losing my uh, stand. Okay. And they, also get, and they also get quails. Not quite as, you know. Not quite manna, but you know, you don't want to freak the Israelites out too much. Okay, so um, what both of these stories have in common uh, are the themes of dependence, of trust, and of God's provision. One, they are about recognizing our fundamental dependence on God, not just about realizing that we occasionally need bits of help here or there. They are about learning that God is trustworthy. He isn't just another kind of Pharaoh who breaks his promises when it suits him who you can never really rely upon to look after you when you need it. And finally, these stories are about God's faithful provision and our living memory of that faithfulness. And what I mean by that is, when the memory of God's faithfulness becomes something that informs not only our present, but also our expectation for the future. So, water, bitter to sweet. Now, this first story is built around something that um, Old Testament scholars call an etiological story. Um, now, just so you know, I'm learning how to be a historian. I work on the medieval church. But even I think Old Testament scholars are a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> just because of dark magic, whatever they're doing. So anyways, so what etiological means is explaining why this place gets the name it does, right? So Mara means bitter, right? Um, now... What's interesting is, by bitter, we're not just talking about something that's difficult to eat. We're actually talking about something that's diseased. That is it requires healing. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, okay, let's get back to using our imaginations. We've got the people of Israel. They've been in the wilderness for three days. Lots and lots of people. Men, women, children, and livestock. No water, not a drop. Now, I think it's pretty easy for us, in retrospect at least, to get all high and mighty on the Israelites. Oh, there they go, complaining again. I mean, really, what about everything God did for them? They had a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Frogs, hailstones, the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, mean, you just wish someone would make a good film about it, you know. Maybe mix in some ethnically appropriate actors, you know, while they're at it. I don't know, dare to dream, right? (laughs) But notice that God doesn't get angry. They've got family, they've got animals. There isn't any water, and the water that they do find, crucially, is diseased. Now, I think we can identify with this, actually. Who hasn't experienced events that indicate God's great miraculous blessing only to enter a period of difficulty and profound hardship? Who hasn't felt called to do something, arrived there, and then nothing? Actually, worse than nothing. It's like being led to a well only to find that the water is undrinkable. And I think that's a little closer to what we are getting here. One day in the wilderness without water is bad enough. But three, how would you respond? Honestly, how do you respond? God, what are you doing? So God answers Israel. He gets Moses to put some wood or a tree or some kind of shrubbery, I'm not sure, into the water. And what is diseased becomes pure. What is bitter becomes sweet. Then God makes a statute, and he, said he, and he says He is putting Israel to the test. If you listen carefully, if you do what I think is right, I won't do to you what I did to Egypt. Now, this is a little bit like saying this. Trust in what I say, depend on me, and things will work out for you. But start playing games with me like Pharaoh and watch out. Now, I think it's worth pointing out here that God's people have the potential to become like Egypt, like those who enslave them, whose heart was hardened towards God. This is a live option. I think we do well to ponder that as people of God. But he says, but God says, he's also the one who heals. I am your healer. Like this bitter water, I will make you sweet. The story then concludes by telling us that Israel moved on to Elam, this expansive, luxurious oasis, 12 springs, 70 palm trees. So then, what is going on here? Well, I think we've got a handle on the miracle. We've got water going from bitter to sweet. Makes sense. But why the three days and why the bitter water in the first place? Why didn't God just take care of it beforehand? Why not send them right along to Elam with the springs, the palm trees, the sun chairs, the pina coladas? It would have been at least... I thought I would get a laugh. Okay. It would, at least, it would have at least been a little more comfortable and somewhat more convenient, don't you think? Just get from A to B, right? What's with all this business in the middle? And what about this whole test, testing thing in the process? What is God doing? Well, let's hold that thought. Let's move on to the second story. So, the Israelites moved from Elam to Sin. Bum, bum, bum. (coughs) Not the most encouraging of changes in scenery. It's like, what do you want to do this afternoon? Should we go to Dundee or should we go to Sin? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, what's the difference? Yeah, exactly. Shocking, shocking. (laughs) I I don't know. I'm going to take another drink of water, I think. All right. So, the whole lot of them complained to Moses and Aaron. If only God had killed us in Egypt. This is basically what it amounts to. At least there we had cooked meat and our fill of bread. There is nothing to eat here. You're trying to starve us to death? Pretty serious words. Now, my wife Alyssa and I have a word for this irrational combination of hungry and angry. And that word is hangry. So, one of these great keys to figuring out how to do relationships is the, it's often these small things to lead most to your arguments. And for us, at least, it's some combination of hunger and something else. So, if you're in the midst of a squabble, you think, wait a second, are you hungry? Yeah. Are you hungry? Yeah, let's get some food. And we'll. It's amazing how things sort themselves out. All right, but, anyways, Israel's hangry. <clears throat> but you know what? God isn't angry with them, which is interesting. Moses might be, but God isn't. In fact, he answers their need. He says he's going to rain manna in the morning and send quail in the evening. But there are stipulations. Gather enough for each day and no more. Only the day before the Sabbath are you to gather twice as much. So no one works on the Sabbath. Straightforward instructions, correct? Wrong. Some try to save it, others try and go out on the Sabbath. God asked Moses, how long are you guys going to keep ignoring what I tell you? And in light of what we know about the unfolding history of Israel and of the church, I suspect this is what we call a rhetorical question. But perhaps we identify what Israel is doing is something akin to a slave's mentality. They are conditioned to believe that no one is going to help them. Certainly not Pharaoh. Look after yourself, get what you can when you can. Sound familiar? It is highly evocative, actually, of that offer back in the Garden of Eden. Do you want self-sufficiency? You want to be like God? Take the fruit. It should not surprise us then that this walking, talking serpent is itself evocative of the iconography associated with Pharaoh. He was a serpent in his crown. You see, habits formed by a lack of trust, by attempts at self-sufficiency, are self-perpetuating and very hard to break. But in any case, the Israelites get 40 years of manna, the, what is this? Which in Old Testament speak is, um, is 40 years, just means a long time. And they put some of it in a jar as a memorial, so that through the ages, Israel will remember God's provision for them in the wilderness. And so ends the second story. So then, let's get back to the question I posed earlier. What is God doing? What is the point of these two stories? Historically, we are, in the, we are seeing the initial stages of God's plan to form a people who are to be a light to the nations. To every person throughout the world. To be a sign that God will not abandon them or his creation. And also... To stop people trying to be like so many little self-dependent, self-interested deities. Like self-appointed pharaohs. And to reconnect them to the source of life itself. And we participate in that narrative today. And what are we looking at in these first two stories? Is how he begins this project. This project in which we play a part. What does he do? One... He makes them utterly dependent on him. Actually, let me restate that. He shows them how fundamentally dependent they are on him. And that's a really important distinction. See, this is the reason the Israelites were led to the place of bitter water before Elam, that oasis in the wilderness. If they go straight to Elam, they learn nothing. The oasis gets credited to good planning, uh, a good uh, itinerary, perhaps even a happy accident. Oh, look what we found. Isn't this wonderful? It is the same reason behind gathering the manna. They are to live day to day, but to rest on the Sabbath. And so they will demonstrate and build a habit of dependence on him. Acknowledging upon whom they ultimately depend. It's just like when we pray, or we should pray often. Give us today our daily bread. It's the same idea. And the second thing. God is building their trust. You see, there isn't any trust in going from Elam to Elam, from Oasis to Oasis. There is no trust necessary in going out to work seven days a week, regardless of what God has already promised. There is no trust in getting very good at helping yourself. But learning to trust? That is where the true Sabbath is. That is where rest is. Freedom from anxiety, freedom from fear. And I think that's good news. Third. God demonstrates his enduring faithfulness. In this part, I get get excited. He does it for 40 years. Every day of every week of every month of every year. They cry out, God responds. Regardless of how they're acting towards him, the manna doesn't stop. At this stage, at least, they are still in the process of learning that God is faithful. That he is worth their trust. He is trustworthy. And here is where the importance of memory comes in. They store the manna as a testament to what God has done. A means of remembering his faithfulness. Israel, like us, are forgetful people. God has met us in remarkable ways. I know enough of your stories to be able to testify to that. But it is so easy to forget when circumstances change. And as the parable goes... Birds snatch the seed off the path. Thorns choke the life out of tender shoots in the soil. The gospel, our uh, um, our testimony to God's good news, uh, God God's good news, needs to take deep root um, in our lives. Do we remind ourselves? Do we chew on, savor what God has done in our lives? Do we allow these memories to shape our decisions to trust Him in the present and in the future? You see, in the wilderness, this all-so-important stage between Egypt and the Promised Land, the people of Israel are learning what it is like to live under this kind of profound faithfulness. It's a scary thing. And it's also a hard lesson to learn. Yet it is fundamental becoming a true son and daughter of God. Do you really trust Him? See, I'm still learning this. I think we, we all still are. But we must learn to depend more fully on God, to recognize our dependency, and embrace, that is to trust in his resolute faithfulness. He must be our daily bread. That really needs to sink in. He must be what sustains us. Consider what our Lord Jesus says in John's gospel. Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Do we believe it? And just as important, do we act like we believe it? Now, I want to conclude by revisiting something I hinted at earlier, and I think it is a fitting example of what it means to have a living memory of God's faithfulness. See, this is my first time in the UK. I was here, well, um, uh, pretty far south of here, from the ages of seven to nine. It was Mum, dad, my sister, and myself. Dad was doing his PhD, and all we knew is that God had called the family to move from Australia's sunny shores to the south of England's Well, slightly less sunny shores. In the first year, we were very poor. I can't remember it much. Um, Kids tend not to. But I've been told that rent was almost missed on occasion, and mum had to work some pretty awful jobs um, just to pay the bills. The four of us lived in the top half of an already small, (laughs) slightly grimy um, English flat. In our tiny kitchen, there was a little square table and a hot water unit that doubled as a drying cabinet in the corner. The heater tank took up the bottom half, and there was a little wooden shelf above it. In that first year, when finances were stretched to their breaking point, my parents found folded stacks of great British pounds sitting on the top of that wooden shelf, above the heater tank in our small kitchen, on the top half of a small flat. A few hundred pounds, twice, no idea where it came from. God is faithful. On another occasion, the rent was due, but nothing was in the bank account. One morning, my dad was running late. He's a bit annoyed and a bit of a rush, which sounds very familiar, or at least should to my wife. I've certainly inherited that, that quality. Uh, <laughs> He's rushing down the hallway when the mail came through the front door slot. Inside was an envelope with a check which exactly covered rent with only about five or ten pounds to spare. God is faithful. At the end of our first year, my dad received a generous scholarship, and these miraculous discoveries became a thing of the past. They became something to remember. See, that is my memory of God's faithfulness in my family's wilderness. We were dependent. We learned to trust in God, now it is a memory that continues to shape our expectations of the present and the future. What are those things that you need, that we need, to remember about God's remarkable faithfulness? What if you need reminding that He is faithful? Do you need help trusting Him? Are there things in your life presently that you really just need to bring to Him and say, I can't do this anymore? And part of that, folks is recognizing your fundamental dependence upon Him. That it's not just about the times that you need Him. You need Him all the time. He needs to be what sustains you. So that's it for me. Um, am I supposed to pray? I've forgotten. <laughs> I'm going to pray and then um, the band will come up. Which, see, normally I'm the part of the band that comes up. That's what <laughs> And yeah, just encourage you to um, come up and bring those things before the lord to get to get prayer to get that kind of help, um, but also just you know ask for God to to take those things that uh, that have been so remarkable in your lives and you know to write those on your heart that these are things that you will that will continue to shape you going forward. so let me pray for you all, Father. How fitting is it that we can talk about the great works that are, that are done, um, that have been done, um, even recently uh, over this issue of slavery um, in our world today. Through the power of prayer for people um, standing up and saying enough is enough, being informed by um, the way that you see us, to see your creation. Lord, we are, we are in a mess most of the time, deeply in need of you. Father, make us more dependent on you. Give us that freedom of Sabbath rest. Be our daily bread, our sustenance. Lord, the fears, the the fears that seem to shape us, the anxieties that shape us, Lord, break these things. Help us to bring these to you. Lord, you are trustworthy. You are faithful. We we give you glory for that. Yeah, even in our in our in the sheer darkness that some of us inhabit, even today, you are there, Father. You are trustworthy. Jesus name amen